0: Hey, John. Hey. Hey. How's it going? Hey. Hi. Hi. Gotta get it real high. Yeah. Sounds like the hoedown. That's what we're getting ready for the hoedown.
1: Getting ready for the hoedown. I'm looking forward to it. Dusty's got some music lined up, a live performer.
0: Yeah, I heard him say that. Yeah.
1: It's gonna be a good time. The
0: pole and everything.
1: Got a pole. Yeah. Right on. Yeah. It's gonna be a good time. Speaking of hoedown... If any of our listeners have any experience making a air cannon, please hit me up. I'm working on an idea right now, and I need some assistance. What's new with you, John? You've been working a lot of tests, haven't you? I have, yeah. What are you doing now? You got a fan going over there? What is that?
0: That is the dryer.
1: Oh, jeez. <laughs>
0: so that's what that is. That's the dryer
1: going.
0: Uh. Or maybe it's the washer. I don't know. Yeah, maybe it's the washer.
1: The what? The washer. The what? Washing machine. The washing machine. <laughs> what are you saying? What is that <laughs> what word? are you
0: talking about?
1: What is that word?
0: Say it again. The washer machine. you got a washer clothes. How do you spell that? W a s h. There's an R in
1: there somewhere. You're saying washer. The washer machine. It's
0: a washer. Yeah. The, well, it's wa- the washer. Yeah. pronounced The
1: wash. The washing machine?
0: No, it's a washer.
1: When you Clearly. go to Washington D.C., how do you say that?
0: Well, that is Washington. Oh, Washington. <laughs> <laughs>
1: oh God, <laughs> I love it. I love right? it. A whole new word I didn't know existed. I never heard. I never heard that before. Dude,
0: uh, yeah, that's it's, it's uh, that's the way it's done. Yeah, well, it's California style. That's something. I don't know what that is, but yeah, testing, man. No, I've been doing a lot of, um, well, the last two weeks, I think I told you, I, um, I'm going to call it what I refer to as I passed the sniff test. So I, you know, the made the molds, you know, where did that term originate?
1: The sniff test? I
0: I don't know. What would be another term to, that's the way I just say, you know, to sniff it out.
1: See, in my mind, I see you like scratching your butt and smelling your finger. (laughs) Well, that dust. is what
0: I do. That's part of it, <laughs> right? That's where the term
1: originated.
0: That's where it started. Like, I don't know, man. I don't think that's so. <laughs> 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 oh man! I don't know. I, I've always just kept that. It's you know, does it does it hold? Is it valid? Does it even you know mean anything? And as long as I've been doing chemistry, so many times over the years. You could put something down on paper, you know, everything based on the pH or the percent solids or whatever the case may be and be like, oh, yeah, there's no question that'll work. And then you go put it together, always start with small batches and like, yep, nope. And then no. And then you have to try to figure out why it didn't work and, you know, so forth and so on. So that's what I did the first couple of weeks was, first of all, recalibrate my beam breaker. Well, I didn't realize it, it had been so long, man. I mean, I picked that up and. It was 2009 when I picked that up uh, back when I was doing ECC. So <clears throat> first I had to focus on calibrating it. And and then I think I told you in the last podcast, I made all my beam molds, but I made them the wrong size because I forgot that I had the whole thing modified for a different beam size. And and then from there, you know what? I'm just saying, this is how I operate. I first made some beams again, just based on old knowledge, because I haven't done beam breaks in so long, and then I test them to see, because these mixes are so much more advanced than I ever was. I pulled out old notes and and just just did some very quick down-and-dirty comparisons. And now this week I started, and it it helps you kind of gain, you know, vision of, where you want to go so first of all I'll jump all over the place because I just want to test what I want to test to kind of get me back in gear again and then this week I started doing control samples and and now I'm moving forward with them so that's what, kind of where.
1: but what are you testing that was my question
0: what do you what, what
1: are you trying to ascertain what information are you trying to gather here
0: well we've talked a lot Again, I don't know. I don't know how to explain it. So number one, I want to do some comparison in fiber loadings. Okay. I want to do some, you know, comparison and set times. I want to do, you know, get some real data again on our, you know, what I refer to as the heat cure or covering up and curing versus not heat curing, just basically covering and insulating. Um, you know, just, just kind of pretty standard stuff like that. Comparisons in flow, you know, at what fiber loadings do you keep a certain flow, and what fiber loadings do you see the flow go down? And 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 what does that even mean, you know? uh, Just just stuff like that. What happens to the fibers? That was a big eye opener here recently. I know I talked to you about it because I sent you the picture, but what happens to the fiber? whichever fibers you're putting in when you put them in and and how does that translate to how they orient themselves in the mix and how does that correlate to strength or at least strength on a, on a beam breaking machine, just, you know, all that kind of stuff. So there's, there's a whole lot of information that I'm going to slowly peel the onion back over who knows how long, but um, it's, it's just fun again. I'm having fun with it again.
1: Yeah. Well, you've, you have, you found some very interesting results that I didn't anticipate and some things that I don't think you did either. Um, let's, let's talk about the first one. That's the fiber, which I thought was interesting about yeah. the orientation of the fiber because that is super fascinating and not something that I ever
0: would have considered. But what did you find? Same. It's something we don't think about. Well, you know, we've heard uh, with a lot of people, there's still this ongoing fear about SCC mixes in glass fiber, and whether or not they show up in the face, and you know why we recommend a certain certain kind of fiber, meaning Owens Corning, where maybe other people only recommend a certain other fiber, like the Nippon, and so forth and so on. And so here was just something totally, totally interesting. And again, this was part of my last two weeks, just kind of looking at stuff. So I broke these two beams, and one was a beam with just all glass fiber, glass fiber loading 2% and one that I did a 2% with the PVA 4,000 combo, kind of like what we did at heroes quest back when people were kind of freaking out about the, the videos shown, you know, like you can't get that kind of flow and et cetera, et cetera. But here was, this is the interesting part. We've talked a lot over the years. And I don't think it really, I don't know, resonates with people when you start talking about the chemistry of products, specifically specific gravities and what does it mean. But I've always talked about how glass fiber, glass is the same weight as sand. And all of us just take that for granted. Like, okay, what does that mean? The interesting thing is in these self-consolidating mixes there was this very distinct pattern that showed up with the all glass fiber uh, I, for better purposes. I'm going to call it a horseshoe shape or a or a U shape or like a V shape. What do you want to see? And what you what what now is pretty obvious to see is that as the fibers were consolidating, like anything else in the mix, up the sides of the beam mold, the fibers were dragging. And basically, they created this very distinct pattern of a U-shape. And then you take that for what it is and like, okay, well, whatever. It is what it is. Maybe they tumbled, maybe whatever, but you just took it for what it is. And then I compared that to the beam break with the PVA fiber. And, I mean, as you very know, I sent you the pictures. It is absolutely distinct that showing... That where the PVA fiber, which is essentially half the weight of your glass fiber, created a, how would I describe it, Um, a much better uniformity of the fiber matrix throughout the bar. Excuse me. And with that, like, well, what does that even mean, John? Well, and then coincidentally, I'm willing to say, it translated to a much stronger flexural strength. So the PBAs are
1: kind of buoyant in a way, and they hold, they, they help create, you like to use the term scaffolding, but kind of a scaffolding of the fiber to where they're evenly distributed and in, in a more uh, uniform orientation where they're not going vertical up the sides and then horizontal on the bottom and then vertical up the sides again?
0: Right, Yeah. that uh, was settling. So it, it, it helped create a stability And it's pretty obvious. I mean, we could talk about it all day long, and I have, right? PVA fibers are, let's say, half the weight, half the specific gravity. Actually, a little bit less, but the reality is they're half the weight. And in those conversations, you know, we've always just taken for granted. It is what it is. But when you see what happened in the fiber pattern in these beam breaks, Again, these are all self-consolidating. So they weren't put on vibrators. There was not anything special about them. And so when you look at those and you see what happened in the pattern and what that meant, was I'm willing to say two things. In the history of me doing this, we've we've heard about, you know, primary reinforcement and secondary fiber and you know, rebar versus glass fiber and et cetera, et cetera. And when people are flipping their pieces times when they get cracking or breakage and oftentimes could never figure like, yeah, oh, you know, I must not put enough fiber. I put 2% load and, Oh, well, did you calculate? did you add the wire water into that calculation? Oh shoot. I don't know. Oh, you know, should you use 3% instead of 2%? And I think all those are valid questions, but what this really showed me is Regardless of that, in a self-consolidating nature, like a real self-consolidating, not a hand pushed around self-consolidating, but a truly self-consolidating is those fibers, assuming it's all glass fiber, it's undeniable that they are going to settle just like if it was heavy sand, which means you could end up with, instead of a more even fiber network throughout the concrete, they can consolidate in a way so that now the back part or what now, you know, starts off this casting as the back doesn't have reinforcement and hence you're you're possible of getting breakage, but you bring in PVA fiber, which is half the weight and kind of stops that from happening and keeps a much uh, the ability to keep a much even fibrous network throughout the entire piece, and uh, and then your strength becomes more even. Does that make sense?
1: Does make sense. It'll
0: make sense. When, it'll make sense when we definitely when we show the pictures because. Well, do me a favor. I I, well,
1: because I don't yeah. have those photos anymore. Send me those photos, and what I'll do is I'll post them in the show notes of this podcast. So anybody that's interested in seeing them just go to kodiakpro.com scroll down to the podcast find this podcast and it'll be in the photos there
0: yeah so now that, that was i think the most interesting thing thus far other than reliving and you know in other words getting back into the zone for doing all these beam breaks again i got this whole pile of broken beams now at the shop i got to figure out what i'm doing with them but um uh, yeah man uh you know so Hit me. What do we want to hear first other than that one?
1: Well, the other thing that I thought was interesting was curing with a heat blanket versus not with a heat blanket. And it's something that I've had a hypothesis for a long time that it didn't make a big difference. I've always felt, you know, I've kind of argued back and forth because when we teach classes, you know, you discuss how you cure and the way you cure is you do polyester felt, plastic sheeting, a blanket, a packing blanket, yep. a yep. heat blanket set on low, and
0: mm-hmm. then
1: another packing blanket on top of that. So that's yeah, one that's, to
0: two over that insulating your heat blanket. Yes,
1: exactly. So that's your your system. My system is the same. I just don't put that heating blanket set on low in, in the middle of those blankets. And, Correct. you know, your, your view, what you've always said is, listen, it's going to create this exothermic spike, the concrete as it cures it, exotherms, and we want to hold that plateau for as long as possible. We're not trying to push heat into it. We're just trying to maintain the heat. We're trying to keep the insulation warm so it's not absorbing that exothermic heat. So your idea was it's going to spike up, and then it's going to hold it for a lot longer and slowly let it come down. And I'm like, well, John, I don't think that's really happening because I come in the next day and I put my hand hand underneath, (laughs) and that thing is cooking. I don't know. But now you actually have – Data to support your your side of it, which I'm glad to see because I just had a hypothesis, and what you found is it does make a difference, and it has a pretty profound difference in the strength and in the temperature because you're tracking temperatures, and I didn't think it would really make a big difference, but it it has. Right. You want to go over that?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So the this week I went back to control control meaning I took Maker Mix, I blended it up, no fibers whatsoever excuse me, just, I don't know what's going on. I've got a frog in my throat or something. Anyway, no fibers whatsoever, cast them. And then I split the beams up where two, you know, X amount of beams go under the way I'm curing and a number of beams go under, again, just covering and then some packing blanket just to act as insulation put into context that my shop right now is about 65 to 70 degrees and and I wash it I put the my temp cube I put under the ones with the heat so that I could monitor how long it takes for the exothermic spike to start and then how long it holds that exothermic spike into the following day when I'm demolding and then at that point comparing the overall strengths and what I found is this and again, now this is all in control, no fiber whatsoever. Number one, let's just talk about temperature, you know, like using your, the IR temperature and like at what temperature are the con- is the concrete at under the heating blanket. Now, again, this is a heating blanket set on low, nothing fancy. I don't have it on high. I just have it on low versus the one that, you know, got no heat blanket. I come in this morning uh, 7 a.m. is when I looked at him. And the ones under the blanket were still 118 degrees. And the ones without the heat were 80 degrees. So right off the, you know, right off the bat, a 38 degree difference. Okay, big deal, John. Like then what does that translate to? Well, what that translated to is this. Now, I'm not going to call it flexural strength because it's really called the moment of rupture. So that's when you apply enough pressure to actually break the beam. So the beams that were not under any heat, all again, I just want to make sure these are all cast same amount of water, same mix, same amount of plasticizer, except no difference. The only difference is how they were cured, all right? So the first one took 3,900 pounds of pressure with no heat, which translates to translated to a moment of rupture of 2,137 pounds per square inch, once you do the calculation. The ones that sat under the heat was 5,100 pounds of pressure translates to 2,794 pounds for a total difference of 30%, 30.74% in strength. That's significant. That's huge. If, if there was a, I don't know, some kind of powdered
1: ad, mixing ad, that would get you a 30% strength increase, everybody would be using it. Right. But you're getting no strength increases just through curing using a heat blanket set on low to keep the insulation yep. warm. And that's really the only difference. Correct.
0: Yeah. That's, that's crazy. That's the only difference. Yeah. And then, like I said, so it's the same shop temps. You know, one wasn't moved over to a refrigerator or anything. They're literally on my casting table within four feet of each other. Yeah, that's the only difference, man. Well, so I'm just going to round it up to an even 31%, 30.74. So, yeah, a 31% total change in strength in that same amount of curing time. I think that's significant. And, it's, yeah. and when I say significant, I know this is the way I talk about it. Like, well, what is that? You there, Chuck? Something. Oh, you, you there? That makes it reasonable for us to talk to talk about. Yeah. You know hey, what I mean? Whatever
1: like, you said, say it again, because for some reason we lost connection, but it reconnected.
0: Oh, really? Uh, what I was saying is, so what are these numbers? Meaning the moment of rupture 2137 versus a moment of rupture 2794. What does that mean to me and you? You know, does that mean I can be more careful flipping it? You know, I mean, what does that really mean other than the difference of about, you know, just over 600 some odd pounds uh, PSI? Honestly, that one I don't know. So for me, what I translate that into is. That's 31% more hydration that took place in the same period of time, casting time in my shop. So again, if I'm casting on Monday and I want to, you know, like anybody, I don't want this stuff sitting around. So I cast, I cure, I process. I I, I guess the easiest way to think about it is that's how much less moisture is in my concrete. That's how much easier it's going to seal. Yes. Is it going to be stronger that way? I, I can be less delicate, delicate with it. I can, you know, I can be more aggressive processing it without worrying about messing something up or, I mean, that's what it all translates to me. So I don't know. I mean, what's your thoughts? Cause I'll be honest with you right? when you and I talk, I was maybe thinking the same thing, 15%, maybe 10 I mean, at the most, 20 But when it came out to, you know, darn near 31% difference in the same amount of time, that's significant.
1: Yeah, it's huge. And the density aspect of it, you know, the, oh, in, yeah. the increased density, because increased strength, increased density, the increased density, the whole reason that we're, shooting for what we're shooting for with maker mix and rad mix is for density. And if people can increase density and you should still use the best mix possible Kodiak Pro. But <laughs> that being said, if any mix you're using some crap polymer mix cure properly, you're gonna get a better density with it. You know, it doesn't yeah. matter what you're using. So I think that was interesting things. Just the, the increase in the strength, increase in a density just from sup- such a simple process And I was resistant, you know, we talk about why are people resistant to this kind of stuff, but I've been resistant to it. Right. I don't know why I have a packing or not a packing, but a heating blanket here. I just, it was a step that I felt was unnecessary, but I didn't have any information to back up that presumption. And it was a presumption. And now we do have data and now I'm going to start using the heating blanket because it makes sense. It's not hard to do. It takes five minutes. It's just another step. Uh, But it, it adds a lot of benefit to the end product.
0: Yeah, no question yeah and i agree with you i mean these are questions i still feel probably at least a few times a week hey john i'm doing this i know this is what but i mean do i really need to cover it well depends what you're trying to do you know i mean my answer is always yes if it's not something you know, again, it, we're not we're not talking about equipment that's thousands of dollars. We're not talking about something that, you know, costs you three, four hours of your time to set up. I mean, we're talking about a heat blanket, you know, a Sunbeam heat blanket. Yeah. They're readily available. Walmart, sunbeam.com. Um, you know, if you have a three-dimensional project, you can still put it in and tuck it in you know these are not ones that that burn up you know i'd say if anything if i could grasp for a downside would be just make sure you buy the ones that have the auto what's it called the auto off feature oh no auto off select that's what it is so in other words you don't want it turning off every 10 hours you know just set it up turn it on that that would be the only grasping downside I could come up with is you bought your blankets without the controllers that allow them to stay on for 24 seven. Yeah. That everything we're talking right now, for anybody who wants to listen, this translate hugely into running your business and being profitable and turning product quicker. And, and I know I keep talking about this, but this rabbit hole gets huge. That, difference in hydration that takes place has a direct correlation with ultimate sealer performance. And when you apply that sealer, how it absorbs, how it mechanically, if you're using a topical, how it mechanically bonds, how the isothionate reacts. If you're using a reactive technology, how well does it absorb? You know, um, there's so much that translates by what we're calling that little number of 30.74% in total hydration that takes place in the same amount of time that, that uh, again, I, I realize it gets frustrating sometimes to get the same questions from people thinking, I don't know, is it necessary? I'm willing to say yes. Well, now I am
1: before I said no, before I was kind of the, the, um, the other side of that coin where when in the classes you would say, do this, I'm like, well, I don't do it. Yeah. You know? right? I, I don't Is really, it really, but I just felt, I just felt that it didn't have a big impact. But now that I know that it does, then I'm going to start doing it. There's no point not to. So, yeah. you know, it's one of those things that, um, once you know better, you do better. I, you know, I, I had this assumption and I've had a lot of assumptions in the past that turned out to be incorrect. I had an, an assumption that it wasn't having a big effect and it turns out it's having a massive effect. And if you increase density of the concrete, you increase abrasion resistance, you increase the ability to resist stains. um, You increase the ability to withstand transport and installation. You know, there's a lot of benefits to curing it properly. It, you know, you and I were talking earlier about this and you were saying, you know, well, you know, I'll I'll essentially discuss my findings and leave it up to people to determine if it's important to them. And my response was, It's important to everybody, John,
0: what people need to,
1: what people need to decide is, are you in the business, you, the person listening, are you in the business of making the best concrete you can possibly make? And if the answer is yes, then you want to do this. If your answer is, well, I just make wall caps, you know, I sell them by the pallet to, to home builders for, you know, these tracked home subdivisions, well then maybe you're not in the business of making the best concrete possible and that's okay. Because you don't always need to make the best concrete possible. There's there's certain industries where it's, you know, I'm making landscape pavers. Oh, okay, yeah. I mean, who really cares? Use a liquid polymer mix. Who cares? Who cares? But if you're in the business, which I'm in the business, you're in the business, Dusty's in the business, Martin Duckett's in the business, Joe Bates is in the business. If you're in the business of doing the best you can do at all levels, then curing becomes part of that.
0: Yeah, I agree with that. And but I was actually chuckling for a minute when you said landscaping pavers, and it just dawned on me. So years ago, you remember Murray Clark? Mm-hmm. Uh, Always so in the factory. Me, yeah, my son, myself, Sean, and Murray. We were down in Orlando, Florida, and this is when anyway Blue Concrete was doing a thing with pigments with a paver company, you know, the pavers, little pavers, and we went to the factory. And it was very, very interesting to see how they made pavers. I've never seen it before, but it's like this huge stamping mechanism. Yeah, I've seen it. It like vibrates as it's pushing it down. It stamps them and it kind of shakes them. But even they figured it out. Those that ended up stacked on a pallet and basically took a forklift and they drove them into a huge steam chamber that sat in there at 99% humidity at 120 degrees. So, I mean... Yeah, so your big manufacturers has figured it out too. If they well, want I'm not to, I'm talking move about them. I'm talking, I'm
1: talking about. There's a lot of guys that, um, or small scale, that make yeah. wall caps, pavers, um, coping, things like that. And those people may not be interested in getting the densest concrete possible, the strongest concrete possible, because it's not important to them. It's not important to the customer. For them, what matters is something that's acceptable to the buyer. And at the best price to the buyer, that's, that's their criteria. And if that's your criteria, then you're not going to waste the time to cover it and put a packing blanket and a heat blanket and another blanket right. for something like that. And I get that. I'm not saying that's wrong because that's just a different business, but I'm in the business and you're in a business. And a lot of people that are listening to this are in the business of making one-off extremely high-end pieces, whether it's a sink or a countertop or a piece of furniture or whatever it is, you're in the business right. of you're working for a clientele that demands the best and it's your your job and it's your reputation to deliver and if that's your goal and i think that's my goal and i i honestly do think that's probably a lot of people listen to school if that's your goal then a you want to use the best products you can get but b you want to follow the best practices possible whether that's how you batch your mixed temperature your curing techniques your sealing protocol whatever those best practices are you're going to be doing those things you're not going to just wing it you're not going to cast one day at 30 degrees in your shop and next day at 200 degrees in your shop and think it's going to turn out the same you know that's not true so you're doing what you can to um to do everything at the most optimal uh you know whatever it is temperature um uh, i don't know I, I kind of went on a tangent there but
0: No, I get what you're saying. But, you know, again, I was trying to translate this. Like, how does that translate other than this is me with a with a beam breaker and, you know, clearly translated into you know the moment of rupture, you know, how many pounds, blah, 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 blah. You know, one thing we 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 talk, but we've never really hit hard is that to me is one of the things that would translate as as why what I create now and get paid for by a client looks so much better in quality. I mean, color richness, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, why does it end up looking so much better? Is it just because I used a better mix or a better sealer or whatever the case may be? Or as I'm showing here, that that's where another place where this 31% difference would have considerable impact on that piece, let's say that vanity or whatever that I'm delivering to a client, it's going to look that much better. Um, And, you know, so I was having this conversation today. (laughs) Maybe I'm going to get, I'm going to get pretty long winded. And I was talking to this guy who was, he was telling me how he's been, it's really been a hobby. He wants to, he wants to move things into, making it more his full-time business. But the reason the concrete end of things has been a hobby is because all the things we talked about, he's got two young children, a three-year-old and an eight month year old. He's working out of his garage, you know, these kind of things. And I walked through a scenario with him. And I know we've talked about it in the podcast and I know you, you and I have talked about it. Cause this is kind of where you're at right now too, is there was a moment when I was doing all this and a little, not a little, a lot concerned moving myself down into a one man show. Right. And in so doing, I had to decide somewhere around that. Do I just raise my price? You know, cause I still, de- I I'd still like to make the money that I'm making uh, without having the mouths to feed and I'm going to scale down. So I'm not carrying around 500 pound pieces And so the conversation I had to him was like, if you and I walked into a jewelry shop to buy watches and at one end of the scale was Timex watches. And on the other end of the scale was the Rolex watches. And, you know, we have to decide what kind of product do we want to make that's going to cater to the clientele that we're looking for so that our business is a resounding, you know, with the kind of clientele we're looking for, brings in the premium that we need to pay our bills and stay profitable. Well, are we gonna make a bunch of Timexes that, you know, I don't know, they seem to tell the time just as well as the Rolex, or we are hoping to make a Rolex, which still tells the same time as the Timex, but caters to a very different crowd. And that was the epiphany as you realize, as as when I was talking to him is what brought this whole maker mix mix design density, color saturation, blah, 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 is moving myself so that instead of demanding a higher price, what I'm making actually commands a higher price But I can do it in a time frame that allows me to live a lifestyle like tonight, going to my son's football game instead of having to work a late night at the shop.
1: 100%. People that buy Rolex value quality. You know, I I get what you're saying about time, and I think that's an important point. But I also want to point out that even though they tell the same time, the watch tell the same time, the Rolex is made to a higher standard. The craftsmanship, the quality, the materials – Everything about it is made at a higher standard. That's going to be a watch he pass down to your child. He passes it down to his child. The Timex might last a few years before it's junk, right? So, yeah, that's I agree. yeah. And so the quality aspect of what we do, I think, is important as well. There was a there, I've always I've always made it a point that wherever I'm at in the timeline of my career, I'm doing the best I can do at that point in time. I've always felt that way. Um, you know, back when I first started, QuickCrete 5000 was the best, right? That was the best. Yeah. That's, that's what you could get. And then when Buddy Rhodes had his mix, that was the best you could get. And then when Blue Concrete and uh, John Schuler came out with their next generation of mixes, that was the best you could get. And, you know, and now where we're at is Maker Mix and Rad Mix, and that's the best you can get. And so I've always made quality. The focus of what I've done. And I think, I think if you focus on quality, if you focus on doing the best from materials, sealer, your, your shop, your space, your tooling, the quality of your molds, the quality of your packaging, when you ship a piece to a client, the quality of your website, the quality of your print collateral, you do everything at the best quality. Things have a way of working out. Things have a way of, of being successful you know, where people get in trouble in this industry is they try to cut corners. They, they step over dollars, pick up dimes. They try to save money, or they try to make more money by saving money, if that makes sense. Right. This conversation has like a million tentacles that can go out in all different it directions.
0: Really does. I know it
1: does. And it I think, does. I think and, the, time uh, it it, is, wait, well, the time part of it is— well I'm sorry. Well, the time part of it that you hit on is also super, super, super important because I am a one-man show now, which I love. It's mm-hmm. the first time in a long time that I don't have— to be here at this exact time because I have an employee showing up at this exact time, and I love it, I love it. But time is important because I don't. If I was doing what I used to do, the way I used to do it, oh my, I can't imagine being a one-man show. I can't imagine mixing up, spraying a face coat, brushing it out, waiting, 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 waiting. You know, doing a whole thing yeah. by myself in my shop till seven, eight p.m. at night. Think about the classes you and I were teaching five years ago right. where we were doing that, yeah. you know?
0: Yeah. Jeez. Well, that's why I started laughing and I told him I wasn't laughing at him when I was having this conversation today. Cause in the background, I don't know, my mindset has just changed so much today. So in the background, he was home in the background, you could hear his kids. He's like, oh, sorry about that. You know, I'd, uh, I said, no, no, man, that's awesome. You know, I went through it myself and now my son's 15, my daughter's 17, but I've been there And as we started talking about, again, where he wants to go, and this is, yes, he was calling me about maker mix products and Kodiak and so forth and so on. But I, you know, anybody who knows me or talks to me, I'll put that on the side first, because there's a lot of qualifying criteria that I believe any of us can discuss before we even start talking about materials, and that was this. So when he told me that, like like some of the other guys we know that you know he's transitioned his garage into a shop so that he could spend more time with his kids, you know, his eight month year old and growing, and and so forth and so on, and and then he told me where he was coming from on his let's say concrete educational journey. And, you know, what he was been taught to believe, like, that he, you know, needed to spray it and do these kind of things. So I'm like, oh, I said, no, man, like, I'm not telling you not to, you know, there's I think there's still plenty of situations where, you know, spraying a face coat and, you know, laminating your back coats and et cetera, et cetera. But that's not a countertop. I don't understand people still going through that process versus a casting technique um, other than again, mixed designs and and that that brings up a whole other part of the conversation. But so this is what he was looking for to transition his hobby business to a real business, to a real income and balance home life, business life, you know, you know, father, husband life and et cetera, et cetera. And, The first thing is when he talked about, no, wait a minute, you're John. So you guys just cast this. I've watched a lot of your videos. It seems like you guys are just casting it. I'm like, oh yeah, no, that's exactly what we're doing. Now the focus was on SCC at the time. So we didn't talk about, you know, ECC consistency and clay mix consistencies and so forth and so on. But yes, you know, this is, this is a mix. If you want to spray it, you can spray it he's like, oh, no, no, if you guys, cause if that's what you guys are doing, this is what I want to do. And I'm not going to name whose projects he specifically sold saw, but like, those were just beautiful. And I want to be doing something like that. And anyway, it was a, again, it was a very enlightening conversation only because it's a conversation for us who have run businesses and, you know, let's say played hopscotch, through all this stuff for the last 20 plus years and balancing everything. It's great to be where I'm at right now and then look back and then help others start where we're at instead of start where we were 20 years ago. You know what I mean?
1: You make a good point, John. Uh, what I want to say is, you know, we're getting close to Halloween. People are looking at costumes. My kids, we go to the store. They want to be a ghost. They want to be a witch. They want to be that. And there's some people out there that want to wear the costume of be professional Concrete business owner, successful. They've been doing this for a long time. Whether whether they're projecting this uh, costume to sell classes or some new product they're working on, you know, at the end of the day, it's just cosplay, as uh, as the kids like to say. But it got me thinking. What you're saying is uh, the relevance of information, the importance of of information from people to actually do what they say. And there was this conversation going on on one of the Facebook forums that was really interesting. Somebody asked about a scale. What kind of scale should I get? And okay. uh, you know, I have in my shop right now, I have a couple O, o- house scales that I bought years ago. And they're on a 300 bucks, 400 bucks each. And they're precise down to like one 1,000th of a gram. And they're great and all, but I don't use them that often um, for a few reasons. But one of, the, one of the reasons is they're plug-in. I have to plug them in with a, with a charger. Right. And uh, But secondly, I just don't need that level of precision. When I'm batching a mix for a countertop or a sink or a chair, I'm weighing things in grams, not fractions of a gram. So if I'm weighing out, you know, 174 grams of TBP, I don't need a thousandth of a gram precision for 174 grams. If I'm 175 or 173, it's not going to change anything. And same thing with pigment. If I'm batching pigment, I need, you know, Whatever, two thousand grams. Um, I don't need a thousandth of a gram precision. And so, for me personally, I bought some cheap Amazon scales. And you know what's funny is, I'll do a project, like I'll, I'll, I'll go someplace to help somebody, and I didn't bring a scale, so I'll just hop on Amazon and overnight a kitchen scale. It's like ten bucks. And I have some that I've had for years now, and those are my go-to scales. Now they're ten bucks. You know, it's it's not something I'd use to batch out anesthesia for surgery. You know, but it, for TBP or pigment, it's going to be more than sufficient. And so anyways, yeah. my point with this long-winded thing is I, I made a comment. and I'm like, hey, man, I, you know, I have these o scales. Here's where you can buy those. If you want those. But honestly, a $10 kitchen scale that's, you know, gram increments up to 5,000 grams is going to be more than sufficient for weighing out plasticizer and pigment. Dude. You know, Martin made a comment that it was a uh, scale gate, which was funny. It's a funny term, but <laughs> the hobbyist that came out of the woodwork to, to essentially pound their chest and say, my scale goes to one billionth of a gram and I need that accuracy. And you're like, no, you don't, you idiot. You don't need no. that. But this is, again, you don't know what you don't know. And when I bought my scales, I didn't know what I didn't know. Honestly, when I bought those Ohau scales in 2004 mm-hmm. and I spent 400, 500 bucks on a scale.
0: Right.
1: Now, listen. Some people, they sit in their shops and make little cubes all day because they want to paint sealer on them or, or do whatever they do. So they just sit in their shop. They don't make anything for a client. And if you're making little two-by-two two cubes, little little baby pieces of concrete, then, yeah, you need a scale that will do something where you can cast a two-by-two two cube accurately. But people that do this for a living, actual professional concrete artisans that are weighing out 2,000 grams of this, 500 grams of that, you don't need thousandth of a gram accuracy. Well,
0: so i the same for the... Sorry, I'm interrupting you. Yeah, it's good to interrupt me. I, I know the you gotta, post you're talking about. And yeah. Yeah, right. You got to break it up. I know the one you're talking about. And yeah, I, I'm going to say see, there's lots of ways and lots of situations in life where, and you mentioned, you know, Halloween, where just people in general, we wear masks, right? Uh, maybe you act a certain way or you present yourself a certain way and you really tried, you've practiced and practiced and practiced it. but there's always going to be situations where the real you comes through. And in that particular post, there was a few things that, that let's just say made it very obvious on who's on what end of what. And here's my perfect example. I even made this comment when I'm working in the lab. Now, this is in the lab setting, meaning lab scale, then yes, I need that kind of accuracy. You know, where I'm, there's times where we're talking either small concrete batches or sealer batches where I may be mixing up no more than 100 grams. You know what I mean? And in that 100 grams of total batch, as I called it earlier, you know, past the sniff test, you know, I only want to mix up 100 grams because I don't want to waste. 10 pounds of material, you know, so I get it. I get it. But under that situation, if someone's recommendations continue to be based on your lab, then it's obvious what you do or more clearly what you don't do, because you take from my lab and go down to the shop where even with the current beam breaks, I'm doing 27 pound batches. I don't need an accuracy of 0.001 grams. Yeah. You don't need it. And if if that's what somebody's continuing to say, nope, that's what you need, that's what you need. Well, again, all and I'm not saying you're wrong, but what that it is clearly shows what that person does or doesn't do. And I don't mean that in a bad way. It just so John Schuler in the lab. Which there is a John Schuler, there is a Dr. Shuler in the lab. There's no question about it. Is a very different experience than John Schuler in the shop. Yeah. Well, and that's, that's my, just the way it that's is. That's my point, John.
1: I'm telling you, as somebody that does this day in, day out and has for 20 years, a $10 kitchen scale off Amazon is going to get you there. You're going to be way more accurate than 99% of the guys doing this if you're weighing stuff well, out to that's the gram.
0: A, yeah, that was one of the comments too. I thought it was a little bit condescending by somebody, because there's this perception that somehow if you're doing DIY, that a DIYer is not looking for quality. And I, I'm going to tell you, I don't know a DIYer yet. And I, I, th- I said that in a previous podcast where I have them come to the shop sometimes. You know, they, they're still trying to make the best of what they're going to make. So. You know, recommending a four hundred dollar scale to somebody, or I, I even a you know two hundred dollar scale to somebody, because they just wanted to make their vanity and make something cool that they put their own hands in and their own uniqueness to, and uh, you know that's uh, it's a little condescending. Um, use what works. Again, I, I bought mean, the, the way. Go ahead. Well, I
1: bought those things when I didn't know what I didn't know. I bought those things when I thought this is what I need, right?
0: Right. No, I, I did the same thing, as you know. And to date, my, you call them, oh, I call them Haas, Ohas, house.
1: I don't know. I don't know. Um, D- who cares?
0: I'm just saying to date, those are the ones that failed me. They ended up not lasting. Yeah.
1: I, I don't care if you buy an expensive scale. It doesn't change my life nope. one bit. And I don't care if you buy a cheap scale, but I have a duty to share my experience with our listeners on where you can save money in my opinion, and where you should spend money. And I don't make any money any way you decide to go. So if you decide to just do all Ryobi tools, knock yourself out. But if you choose to wanna buy better tools, and I'm happy to share which ones I think are money well spent because I've gone through a ton of tools over the years and some have lasted and some have failed. But I can tell you, as somebody uses a scale every single day to cast client projects, not little tiny baby cubes, but actual client projects, I can tell you, the kitchen scales from Amazon for 10 bucks haven't filled me yet. I haven't had to recast one piece because of some inaccuracy with a kitchen scale. And I think that has to do also with the, with the very, the variance you have in a mix. So like I'm saying, if you're batching out three bags of maker mix and you need 190 grams of TBP, if it's 191, okay. If it's 189, yeah,
0: 189, okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah
1: right. Like, okay. Yeah. So So. Uh, you don't need a thousandth of a gram accuracy. That's just where I think people are, are missing a force from the trees. You know, they, they just are wasting their money on the wrong things. I'm trying to save them from doing that. But if you want to do it, do it. But I'm telling you it's a waste of money. That's my opinion.
0: Well, it's funny while you were talking about that, I'm like, actually, what would that translate to if you're doing a 1% pigment load? you know, 340 grams of pigment. So, uh, sorry, I'm willing to say whether you were 345 or even 335, that, f- if, if you're off by 5 grams, that's not the difference of something turning out gray or white. Yeah. Yeah. You're never going to know the difference.
1: Dude, I'm so, telling you. Yeah, I, I've I cast thousands, no joke, thousands of projects with an Amazon $10 scale And have not had one piece. Now, maybe I've been lucky, and there's a good chance I have. Maybe I've been lucky that all these years it's been fine. But I'm (laughs) telling you, I've had phenomenal success
0: with it. Well, that's what I'll say. I mean, based on the experience of the person making those recommendations, they're making the recommendations based on what they need per their experience. That's all. And I don't mean that badly. I just mean... You know, for what they do, like legitimately do what their experience level that's where it's coming from.
1: Yeah. Okay, John. I gotta get to work. It's Friday and I am actually casting right, some buddy. concrete this afternoon. So I'm gonna I'm gonna get to mixing. Right on, man. All right. Okay. Well hey, well, good hold talking down. to you hold as down. usual. Next week.
0: Oh that ho down, slow down.
1: Hoedown, slow go down. Ahead. I'm leaving next week to go to the hoedown. down. You're leaving next week too. So
0: Yeah, Wednesday. I'm looking forward
1: to it. Yeah. I'm going to send the email to everybody uh, this weekend. Just with details on on the hoedown, but um, it's going to be a good time. For anybody else interested in workshops, the fundamentals workshop is coming up December, December 7th and 8th, I think. I'm going off memory right now. Um, And my shop here in Wichita, but I had a few more registrations this week. So that class is is, uh, doing good. So if you're wanting to come learn the fundamentals, if you're wanting to start... At the very first step of concrete, go to ConcreteDesignSchool.com dot com, and uh, you can read about what we're going to be doing and register if you want to
0: come. Oh, uh, you know what? That's not a bad idea. I might call that guy back that I was speaking to today, and um, tell him to hit your place. Yeah, yeah, you for the uh, for the first one. Yeah, for a fundamentals class. I think that would get him up to speed very, very quickly.
1: Yeah. Well, I hope he. I hope he's able to make it, and I hope you're able to make it, John.
0: Yeah, it all depends if I have surgery or not.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well. You might be Jane after that surgery. We'll see.
0: Well, yeah, I'm just saying that they're going the wrong way because I paid for the extra, extra large. Uh, <laughs> this is Something's not right. Uh, oh, that's
1: funny. All, all right, buddy. I'll talk to you later. Adios.
0: Adios.